Hello, and welcome to The Turbulent World with James M. Dorsey. I'm your host, James Dorsey. India has been racked by intercommunal violence, fueled by the rise of Hindu nationalism, represented by Prime Minister Narendra Modi, by far India's most popular politician, and his ruling party, Bharatiya Janata Party, or BJP, and Mr. Modi's Hindu nationalist ideological cradle, Rashtriya Swayamasevak Sangh, or RSS, which stands for National Volunteer Organization. Like Mr. Modi, various of his ministers and associates trace their roots to the RSS. Many hold the RSS a powerful grassroots organization with some 6 million members responsible for the violence and explosion of anti-Muslim sentiment in India. Even so, most would agree that there may be no Hindu-Muslim reconciliation without Muslim engagement with the RSS. So far, the RSS's primary Muslim contact point has not been Indian Muslims, but Indonesia's Nahdlatul Ulama, the world's largest and arguably most moderate Muslim civil society movement. Nevertheless, several Indian Muslims, including former government officials, military officers, journalists, and intellectuals, have reached out to the RSS and held two rounds of talks. The first before the COVID-19 pandemic and the second mid last year. Some Indian Muslims concerned about ongoing attacks and discrimination have been critical of the slow pace of the Indian Muslim dialogue with the RSS. At the same time, the Indian Muslim and Nadatul Ulama dialogues appear to be running on separate tracks with no interconnectivity. Even so, the dialogues take on added significance in an Indian and global environment of increasing polarization in which talking to adversaries is falling by the wayside. Recently, RSS leader Mohan Bhagwat appeared in a wide-ranging interview to throw out olive branches, while Mr. Modi called on members of his party to reach out to the Muslim community. These, gest these gestures have yet to translate into an improvement on the ground for Indian Muslims. To discuss all of this, I am joined by Najib Jung. Najib is the perfect interlocutor, not only because he is one of the initiators of the Indian Muslim dialogue with the RSS, but also because he understands government, policy, and politics as a former senior Indian civil servant and lieutenant governor of Delhi, as well as an energy scholar and consultant. Najib Jung, welcome to the show. Thank you, James. Thank you. Let's start off with the fact that the RSS is widely seen as a driving force of Hindu anti-Muslim sentiment in India. Why is dialogue necessary? What do you expect of the dialogue? What do you expect it to produce? And what has it produced so far? Uh, well, you said it that um, the RSS that started about 100 years ago, in fact, exactly 100 years ago, uh, did have an uh, anti-Muslim stand. But then a century has gone by and the RSS has seen many uh, ups and downs. So uh, let me stay with the contemporary times and not uh, 
hug back on the past of the of the RSS. Uh, we believe, or at least we thought, that engagement with the Sangha, I am addressing the RSS as the Sangha now, uh, was imperative because uh, they too carry uh, a voice with this government that, as you said, many of the members, uh, ministers in the government uh, have been or are indeed are uh, members of the Sangha. And, uh, and therefore, and therefore uh, the Sangha does carry a great deal of influence. Uh, we also believe that minus dialogue, uh, things will never, never improve. I, as an individual and my colleagues who went to meet uh, Mr. Bhagwat and his colleagues are, are fully aware uh, of, of the background. Uh, we, we believe that uh, these are turbulent times and the only way forward is to enter into a dialogue with them. And uh, insofar as our meetings with Mr. Bhagwat and his other uh, Sangh leaders are concerned, we came away relatively heartened. Uh, uh, we think that the, uh, that the Sangh is uh, looking for a change, uh, change in approach. Uh, no less than Mr. Bhagwat himself told us that uh, the Sangh in its highest uh, echelons have had discussions and believe that Indian minorities are very much part of the, uh, of the Indian ethos. Uh, he is clear in his mind that in the larger picture of India, uh, its minorities have a critical role to play in its future development. And therefore, the highest echelons of the Sangh have debated and, and agreed uh, that uh, ways and means have to be thought of to take uh, Muslims, Christians, and others along. That's where we stand uh, at the moment. I know, I'm fully aware, we have drawn criticism from a lot of my liberal friends, both from the uh, Hindu side and the Muslim side, who believe that, uh, uh, that this is not the correct approach, that the RSS will not change, that uh, we are indeed uh, legitimizing them in a way. Uh, my answer to them is that uh, I have no alternative. I have to talk. And insofar as the question of legitimizing is concerned, they are already in government. So they don't seek legitimacy from a motley ground, a motley group of five or six Muslims approaching them and trying this, this dialogue. So that's where we are at the moment. Thank you. Let's come back to uh, aspects of that in a second. Uh, it strikes me that you've met with the RSS twice once before the pandemic, once after six months ago. That pace doesn't convey a sense of urgency, even though many Indian Muslims have a sense that they are under attack and need an uh, easing of tensions sooner rather than later. Uh, no, uh, James, that unfortunately, the time lag because of COVID, that we met Mr. Bhagwat in 2019, um, August, or maybe September, and uh, he was very gracious. He said that we must continue this dialogue, that uh, I and my colleagues would be his guest in the RSS headquarters in Nagpur. Uh, he invited us the following June, but thanks to the pandemic, uh, our dialogue broke off. And it was only last summer, I think it was May or June, when we saw things again getting out of hand uh, because a lady from the uh, BJP had made statements uh, 
against the Prophet and his family, and that had agitated a great deal of Muslims. Uh, as you are aware, the Muslims are extremely sensitive on, 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 on the Prophet, peace be upon him. And, and we thought that that was the right time to reestablish contact uh, with Mr. Bhagwat and continue our dialogue. So I was actually in the United States and I, and I wrote to him uh, that uh, I want to come back with the same group and meet you. And he was very gracious. And within a month, we got time. And this meeting went on for a long time. And after that meeting, also, we have met his representative. So the meetings are not limited just to twice, uh, but uh, indeed uh, three times now. RSS leader Mohammed Bhagwat has both condemned anti-Muslim violence and said excesses are understandable and inevitable in what he described as a war. At the bottom line, there seems to be not only a marginalization of Indian Muslims in today's society, but also a rewriting of history in which Muslims are perceived as invaders rather than members of the community. In, in other words, how sincere is the RSS if it fails to wholeheartedly take steps, which it could do at no great cost. Uh, James, we are very concerned at these attempts at rewriting history. What is gone is gone. And there are conceptions and misconceptions of what indeed happened. So uh, we, can't, we can't deny what happened, but there are versions of history that the RSS believes and there are others uh, who would continue to contest those, those beliefs. So we are concerned at this repeated attempt uh, by the Sangh and uh, uh, others to try and change and rewrite uh, history, particularly of the, of the uh, time since the, Mughal, since the Muslims came into India in 1000 AD uh, until the time the British left. So both these time zones are involved. Uh, having said that, uh, on the sincerity of the RAS, RSS to continue, I cannot say. Uh, that is really up to them. But uh, what I can say is that my dialogue so far does not give me any apprehension that they are not serious. They have their concerns. They have fairly serious concerns and they carry a lot of baggage, a historical baggage. Like we said, they are 100 years old. Uh, they have been taught many things and have come to believe many things, right or wrong. Uh, the time it will take to change those uh, beliefs, or at least come to an understanding, is, uh, is unknown. I mean, I have friends who said that, well, you know, uh, what has happened in two meetings? I, I would say to them, two meetings means nothing in an issue like this. It may take me 25 meetings. It may take me a year. It may take me three years. I can't say. But uh, the reason I'm progressing and I'm moving ahead is I believe that uh, in due time, they will convince us because there are, look, let's understand that there are hardliners among Muslims and they stand out in your face. There are historical reasons where uh, uh, Muslim majority countries are uh, are behaving in a way that is not acceptable modern democracies. Uh, so uh, there is a face of Islam that needs to, to, to modernize, that needs to change face, that needs to get away from its hard, hard, hard face, let me say. And, 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 the, and you know what we are seeing in the ISIS or from the Taliban are not the best face to put up. So, and this is something that we in India see every day. Uh, we hate the beheadings by the RSS. We hate the beheadings or behavior 
towards uh, women in Afghanistan. But uh, uh, Muslims are often lumped with that image. There is indeed growing Islamophobia in the world. And so to take you away from the RSS, let me say that we need to also have a fresh look at what the Nehadudul Ulama are doing at concepts in Islam to, uh, to bring a new modern face of Islam before the world. The religion, uh, what the Prophet says, Rahman, Rahim, uh, there is Rahmat, there is, he is benevolent. Uh, Allah is merciful and beneficent. I do not see Allah as angry, as carrying a sword beheading people. He is a Rahman. So that, that aspect of Islam has to be brought out. And if I, if I look back and I see the life of the Prophet, I, I truly believe that he was a great human being that walked the planet in his time. And nowhere has the Prophet uh, taught of hatred. He has always spoken of love. There are sufficient examples in his life when things were going against him and when people were against him that he talked of love, he talked of mercy. And that aspect of Islam is completely being forgotten. And you only remember, uh, you know, marauding hordes somewhere. Um, and that's often quoted in movies. That's not Islam. So, so uh, in, in, within India, we have to look at both aspects. Muslims and Hindus have to understand the language of love, the language of the Buddha, the language of Gandhi. That has been my tradition. So we dislike, we dislike the approach of the killing of Gandhi. Gandhi was our leader. He is the founder of our country. He is the uh, fa father of the nation. The, uh, someone should listen to the great speeches in the constituent assembly of our leaders. When they spoke, uh, you know, uh, this great debate these days in India on the, on the uniform civil code. Now, within the Congress party, these secular leaders debated to Nehru that, look, on one side, you talk of the Hindu code bill. Why are you not talking of the uniform civil code? And at that time, within the Congress party, they debated. And, 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 and great leaders of the party, uh, Acharya Kriplani, Rajendra Prasad, they spoke that we should have a uniform civil court. There were others, like Sucheta Kriplani, Acharya's wife, and Nehru himself who said, let, uh, there's a sensitive issue to Muslims, let's give them time. That is India. We give time, we are patient, we love each other. Unfortunately, there is an element amongst us, both Hindus and Muslims, that have that are taking the country all right. I want to come back to the issues within Islam in a second, but uh, perhaps you can elaborate a little more on what the interest is of the RSS in having a dialogue beyond wanting to be seen to engage in what, in a way that deflects criticism. Uh, let me put it this way. I think uh, the place where India is today, it has never been before. Its economy is taking off. We are becoming the third largest economy in the world. People are prosperous. And the Sangh in its wisdom realizes that for India to move ahead, we must all move ahead. Whether it means a change in ideology, whether it means a ra radical change, or whether it means a modicum of change, I can't say. But as of now, I see a perceptible change uh, in the voice of Mr. Bhagwan. 
that there is an attempt to change. Of course, there is resistance to him also within this organization because he can't change radically all the radical elements in the sun. He, he has known battles to fight. I would give him that space and, and be patient and, and, and believe in him that over time, we hope to improve. Once relations start improving, once we get the monkey of partition of our back, once uh, the Hindu radicals and the Muslim radicals understand the message of peace and love, then the RSS or the Muslim organizations will change. That is my belief. <clears throat> Sorry. Let me pick up on that. Some analysts suggest that a dialogue with the RSS has a greater chance of success than with Prime Minister Modi's Bharatiya Janata Party, because the RSS as a grassroots movement has less interest in polarization than the BJP, uh, particularly given uh, the upcoming uh, elections next year in India and the uh, role that polarization plays in mobilizing voters. Would you agree with that analysis? Yes. Look, winning power in India is an awfully difficult exercise. It is, it is physically very demanding. It is financially extremely expensive. And the BJP is not in the business of altruism. They are in the business of winning elections. They are in the business of running a government and winning as much power as possible. Today, they are the largest political party, if not India, at least, uh, if not the world, at least certainly India and in many parts of the world. I don't see any party as large as the BJP. So if they have to sustain themselves in power, then polarization is part of the game. We have seen this in uh, successive elections that have taken place in the near future, in the near past. And indeed, uh, I anticipate uh, uh, greater attempts at polarization uh, in, uh, in, in coming elections, say, in, in the states like Karnataka and the national elections in 2024. So that's the reality we face. But that doesn't mean that communalism has come to stay. It, it, there, there, are, there are highs and lows in the tide of communal behavior. And, and while we have seen a high, I, I anticipate that we will indeed see a low as time passes on. Can you uh, tell us a little bit about how other segments of the Indian Muslim community have responded to your dialogue? And what could the community, particularly religious leaders and scholars, do to support the dialogue? Uh, you know, James, this is very interesting. Uh, of the lots of uh, WhatsApps and emails and letters that we have got, not only me, but all my colleagues, uh, we have, I would say easily 90% support from the Muslim masses as indeed the non-Muslims. Uh, we have been criticized by a section of Muslims and a section of non-Muslims and I put them as, a, as very radical secular liberals who believe in giving no quarter to any element of communism that they see within the RSS. But 90% uh, have supported us. They said that there is no way, there is no uh, reason why we should not continue because there is no other way ahead. Uh, in, in terms of the Muslim clergy, uh, we approached the Deoband school, we approached the Nadwa school, we approached the Jamaat ul Ulama-e-Hind, 
and we have universal support from all of them it's indeed very pleasurable to see that no one has said that please do not dialogue would would that support go as far as them joining you in the dialogue in in my last meeting that i had uh, with senior uh, members of the sang in in the very house that i'm sitting right now uh, there were four very senior people of the sang and uh, we had about 15 uh, from the muslim side which included the jamaat ul ulama hind the jamaat e islami uh, we had uh, members from uh, the darga ajmer uh, we had professors we had lawyers and uh, they all joined in this meeting yes indian muslims are not the only ones to engage with the rss so is indonesia's nadatul ulama the world's largest muslim majority movement do indian muslims welcome engagement by non indian muslims and are these different dialogues mutually reinforcing or competing with one another i think by and large the larger muslim community is so poor and removed from these things that they are unaware of the efforts uh, uh, of you know the nadatul ulama uh, uh, or other others Uh, the muslims in india are exceptionally poor post partition uh, their uh, their economic and social status is uh, today uh, lesser or weaker uh, than the dalits uh, who you know were the weaker sections in india pre partition uh, but the status of dalits uh, various studies have shown have improved over time uh, thanks to reservations and affirmative action by governments uh, unfortunately in the case of muslims affirmative action over time has uh, uh, gotten uh, has uh, got to be accepted as appeasement so any uh, any initiative by government to to take affirmative action to muslims is you know abhorred by many people saying that look you are favoring muslims the people are refusing to understand that muslims are economically and financially extremely deprivated uh, they are living in ghettos uh, they are afraid of their lives Uh, they they seek protection from the administration and police, uh, which is often not fair towards them. Uh, this, if you see in the background of uh, of you know lynchings or or Dharam Sansad, where you call for uh, genocide, etc., is very shaking up. It, it shakes up the community. So right now, I don't think that they are aware of what's happening in the larger world. they are more concerned with their daily wherewithal and it's really incumbent on all of us to speak to them it's incumbent on the government of india to give them confidence i said this to mr bhagwat and i'll make this appeal again that uh, mr bhagwat and indeed mr modi uh, both of them have to assure this community that 15% of india can't be left behind they can't be uh, left in uh, Uh, with such lack of confidence and a sense of dismay uh, we have to give them confidence we have to do hand holding that's indeed our effort to the rs to get the rs to convince the government uh, over time that attitudes must change is it conceivable that the rss may be more attentive to what a group like nadatul ulama says as opposed to um indian muslims and particularly indian individuals i didn't get that question can you repeat the question please sure. 
the question is if, if it is conceivable that the RSS may be more attentive to what a group like Nadatul Ulama says than what a group of uh, Indian, prominent Indian Muslims, but nevertheless uh, individuals puts forward. No, these are two different things. I think the RSS is very sensitive to international opinion. Therefore, what happens in Indonesia, they would love to participate. And anything that is uh, uh, putting forth uh, a softer version of Islam would be welcome to the RSS. Uh, similarly, uh, our dialogue with the RSS, I think, should be uh, adequately welcome. Because we also are an uh, educated, sensible face of Indian Muslims. Uh, we are not aggressive. We do not follow any uh, Wahhabi uh, beliefs. We are against the hardcore face uh, that the ISIS or others put up. And we believe in the same concepts of Islam that are put forward by the Nehadatul Ulama. So I think that we'll be pretty well received. In your mind, does Nehadatul Ulama have an advantage by virtue of the fact that it is engaged in reform of religious jurisprudence that are RSS sticking points in contrast to other major, including Indian Muslim organizations, institutions and authorities? Uh, by, for example, declaring in, as obsolete the notion of non-Muslims uh, or that non-Muslims are second-class infidels and calling for the elimination of the concept of the caliphate. These reforms address major RSS concerns. The concept of the caliphate in India is dead. We are aware of the three caliphates that have existed, I mean, after after the first caliphate of the four khalifas, that is uh, Abu Bakr, uh, Hazrat Umar, uh, Usman, and uh, Hazrat Ali. We know that subsequent to that, there was a caliphate in Baghdad, and there was a caliphate in, uh, in Spain as uh, indeed uh, Cairo. Those are dead concepts. Uh, when, the, when the caliphate finished in Turkey, there was a small movement in India called the Khilafat movement, but that went nowhere. So historically, the Indian Muslims are, are not even aware of the larger concept of pan-Islamic movement or a Khilafat uh, being established in the world for Muslims. That is a dead concept. Uh, any Indian who calls uh, a Hindu kafir is unacceptable to a sensible Muslim. A kafir, by definition, is a non-believer. We believe that Hindus are indeed believers. Uh, there are there are quotations in the Gita uh, in uh, Adi Shankaracharya saying that we are all one, that there, there is one God. This is exactly what Islam has said. Uh, that is also what uh, what Hinduism says. And Islam, of course, goes goes on to accept uh, the people of the book as as you know the larger family, which is the Christians, the Sabians, and and the Jews. So. I think that the concept of reviving a caliphate doesn't even exist in the Indian Muslim mind. The Indian Muslim is interested in living in peace and harmony. He is not interested in his nationalism being challenged. He has stayed behind in India. There are soldiers, there are civil servants, there are policemen. They will lay down this life for this country any day. And so, 
I think the time has come when Hindus and Muslims have to move along and remove misunderstandings. And that is our effort to the RSS. They have misunderstandings vis-a-vis -vis Muslims. Muslims have uh, misunderstandings vis-a-vis -vis, uh, Hindus. Those are the issues we need to remove in double quick time. And that's our effort. I guess the question is whether, which is basically the argument that Nadatul Ulama puts forward, is that to fundamentally erase any doubts and also resolve problems within Islam, for example, uh, extremism, as we've seen with jihadists uh, like Al-Qaeda and like the Islamic State, that to do so, you actually need to change the, the, the religious jurisprudence. In a sense, it's like the, um, the notion of slavery. There, no Muslim today endorses this notion of slavery, yet it is still part of Islamic jurisprudence and should be removed. There's no doubt that the Muslims need to debate on jurisprudence. Islam has a very old concept of ijma, which is dialogue. I am afraid that since the ulama have taken hold over all these things, the debate has ceased in the Muslim community. And unfortunately, historically, in the last 20 years, uh, Muslim community hasn't covered itself in glory vis-a-vis -vis, uh, it is the Iranian state, whether it is uh, uh, post-Saddam, Iraq, Syria, and of course, our friends in Afghanistan and Pakistan, uh, not to mention that the Saudis desperately need reforms. So there is no doubt the, the larger question, and I think the Nahdlatul Ulama and all of us will struggle, is how to bring about this larger reform and debate uh, to, to look at uh, Muslim fiqh, which is uh, jurisprudence in the larger sense. The world today doesn't even have adequate number of Muslim scholars, I'm afraid, uh, with secular mind spread to, to sort of look at all this. I think that we need to look at Islam in the context of modern times. And, and for the world peace, it is absolutely essential that one billion people uh, uh, look, at, look at the world with the prism of modernity. And therefore, to the extent uh, that Islamic jurisprudence needs, uh, needs a fresh look, it should be very welcome. The RSS is also concerned about demography with Muslims accounting for only 200 million of India's population of 1.4 billion. The demographic fear seems exaggerated, if not artificially constructed. That's a different ballgame if one looks at South Asia as a whole, and particularly India, Pakistan, and Bangladesh. Then the ratio suddenly becomes six to 700 million Muslims versus 1.2 billion non-Muslims. To what degree is the fact that uh, are the, or are the demographic fears driven by the fact that the RSS thinks in regional terms with its civilizational concept of Akhant Bahart, a concept of a greater India that would stretch from Afghanistan to Myanmar, encompassing Pakistan as well as Bangladesh, Nepal, Bhutan, Sri Lanka, and the Maldives? Well, I, I think the, the idea of uh, this Muslim demographic uh, uh, outburst is, is nonsense, and people understand this. 
there have been enough studies done, including by one of uh, colleagues who went and met Mr. Bhagwat with me, who has who has done uh, actually a mathematical calculation done by a leading mathematician in uh, in Delhi that the Muslims, even in next 50 years, can never, never match up to Hindu population. That's impossible. And and I think in the heart of hearts, everyone realizes uh, the rate of growth of Muslims vis-a-vis uh, -vis Hindus and Christians is marginal, you know, uh, point here, point there. So it's nothing. Uh, I, 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 of course, think uh, uh, that uh, the concept of the larger Hindu Rashtra or uh, uh, what we call Akhanda Bharat, is, uh, is uh, something uh, which uh, the RSS had dreamt of. They have often spoken. But I would imagine, and I can't say for a fact, but I would imagine that in their heart of hearts, they know that it's easy to talk and it's easy to write about, but it's not going to happen. You have said that there are issues that are easy to resolve with the RSS and issues that are more difficult. Which issues are easy and which are more difficult? Uh, some uh, some issues raised by the RSS are very easy to resolve because resolve because I think they were actually uh, more or less non-issues uh, in the present context. Uh, the one uh, one, th one concern that they have is that they are called uh, kafirs by Muslims, and we explain to them that uh, uh, this is not done by by sensible Muslims. Of the fourteen percent in India, not even thirteen point nine percent would call Hindus kafirs. Kafir. Hindus are our brothers. Uh, kafir by definition is a non-believer and indeed the Hindu to us uh, is is absolutely believer. Uh, this uh, this reference to being believers comes uh, from the Gita, uh, from you know sermons from the Adi Shankaracharya, the belief in one God. And so there is no question of the Hindu being a kafir. If someone calls him a kafir, it's a sign of being um, being illiterate, a fool, and unacceptable to larger Muslim community. That's one. Uh, they are very sensitive uh, on the issue of uh, cow slaughter. And we explain to them because, and rightly so, because uh, the cow is a very, very holy animal to all of us in India. Uh, she is a symbol of love. She's a symbol of motherhood. She gives us milk. And therefore, uh, if there is any issue on cow slaughter, if a rogue, uh, does do cow slaughter, then it's it's a rogue element not sanctioned by the larger community. It has to be dealt under law. Uh, cow slaughter is illegal in India, except in some states where uh, customs still allow them to, uh, to, to slaughter a cow. And that uh, indeed has been accepted by the government of India. But in the larger context of India, we do not accept cow slaughter. Uh, the, the most sensitive issue, I think, which will need very labored dialogue is, uh, is the question of mosques. Uh, because uh, the larger Hindu community does believe that the Muslims destroyed a large number of mosques and they should be given back. And, 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 and Muslims actually would resist that. Now, that would require a lot of debate and dialogue and understanding. Uh, from the Muslim side, there's a, there's a big concern. Uh, there have been lynchings. There have been uh, there have been uh, uh, these haram censors calling for genocide. Uh, there are there are leaders within the party who have spoken language that is uh, not entirely, shall I say, parliamentary. Uh, those have to be curtailed. So these are these are the smaller issues. The larger issues, like I said, 
uh, will be just one or two. And over time, I think with dialogue and consistent dialogue and understanding, we'll be able to come, we'll be able to overcome them. That changes exactly the idea where we, why we entered into this dialogue. We are aware, fully aware, that there are smaller issues and we are fully aware that there will be uh, much larger issues. And it's only through dialogue and understanding that Muslims on both sides, including the hardcore on both sides. Look, it's very easy for me and you to come to an understanding. But there are radical elements. And let's not deny that all communities have radical elements. Perhaps the, the percentage of radical elements has enhanced over time. And that often comes with lack of education. That comes from politicization. And all that has to be resisted and fought tooth and nail by the, by the sort of thinking society in India. Nadatul Omar's goal in its engagement with the RSS is to inspire a Hindu equivalent of its interpretation of Islam as humanitarian, pluralistic, and embracing the Universal Declaration of Human Rights unambiguously. Is that realistic? Absolutely realistic. I, I think the Muslims in India are completely prepared for that. I think the Muslims in India are realizing that radicalization will not help them. Of course, they need greater education. We need modernization of our madrasas. We need modern education in our madrasas. We need to teach them mathematics and physics. We have to teach them E is equal to MC square, that the world has moved on. But the Muslims, like I said, are living in poverty. And when a man is poor, then his thinking also gets limited. So with patience and time and with encouragement from government, and I insist that it is indeed incumbent on every government now and future to accept affirmative action towards minorities in India as an absolute necessity. If you call this appeasement, then we will all suffer. And do you see the equivalent uh, movement as realistic on the Hindu side? My meetings with Mr. Bhagwat have given me hope. I will leave it at that. I can't say much further. I know that I have a huge number of liberal friends who agree with you and me that we have to move forward. I know that I have a huge number of liberal friends who think I'm wasting time. I am aware that there are a large number of Hindus and Muslims who don't agree with us, who think that the Muslims have to be taught a lesson or vice versa. Now, this latter group is the one that has to change its thinking. It can only change with sensible talk and conversation. Finally, India chairs this year's summit of the Group of 20, or G20, that brings together the leaders of the world's largest economies. Indonesia, last year's G20 chair, institutionalized the Religion Forum 20 a summit of religious leaders as an official G20 engagement group. Nadatul Ulama manages the Religion Forum's permanent secretariat. What opportunities does that offer to Indian Muslims? And should Indian Muslims and Nadatul Ulama be reaching out to one another in the run-up to a religious summit in India? I think most of us are unaware of this uh, religious summit. 
it's not been publicized adequately. What should it happen? And there are speeches that are uh, that are brought in public domain that talk of brotherhood and love and and following the middle path. Then I think that we can have hope. But so far, we are not so aware of what is going to happen in the G20 religious uh, religious conference. Najib Jung, this has been a fascinating insight into the dynamics of Hindu-Muslim relations in India. Thank you for joining the show and best wishes. Thank you, James. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining me today. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Diplomats, policymakers, investors, executives, journalists, and academics listen to my twice-weekly podcast and or read my syndicated newsletter that is republished by media across the globe. Maintaining free distribution ensures that the podcast and newsletter have maximum impact. Paid subscribers help me cover the monthly cost of producing the newsletter and podcast. Please consider becoming a paid subscriber. You can do so by clicking on Substack on the subscription button at www.jamesmdorsey.substack.com and choosing one of the subscription options or support me on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash soccer. Please join me for my next podcast in the coming days. Thank you. Take care and best wishes.